Here's a thought riddle for you. Why did the Bodhidharma come from the West? Answer, cypress tree. In this episode, we sat down to talk about the legendary Buddhist monk, the Bodhidharma, along with New York-based Chinese artist Zhang Hongtu, Chinese political pop, and Zhang's 2007 to 2014 series, Bodhidharma Van Gogh, where he merges two icons to challenge, quote, East and West dualities. Hey, Ellen. Hi, Courtney. Recently, I was scrolling through Instagram and I saw that there was an exhibition on New York-based Chinese artist Zhang Hongtu's work at the Jennifer Bong Gallery in New York City. The exhibition featured a series of ink paintings, 39 in total, made over a period of seven years that I found so intriguing. Hmm. The paintings are based on Van Gogh's self-portraits, but painted in the minimalist Chan or Zen ink style of portraits of the founder of Chan Buddhism, the Bodhidharma. You know, and I think that Zhang Hongtu, he's such an interesting artist for us to talk about because, you know, I mean, just to give a little bit of background, Zhang was born in Gansu province in China in 1943 to a Chinese Muslim family. Uh, he studied at the Central Academy of Arts and Crafts in Beijing from 1964 to 1979. And then in 1982, he immigrated to the United States. Now, his career in the United States, it really took off in 1987 when he painted the face of Chairman Mao, Mao Zedong, uh, the founder of the People's Republic of China on a Quaker Oats box. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this work launched a political pop movement in Chinese art. The term political pop is used to describe works of art that combine American pop art with socialist realism seen in art from China. Mm -hmm. Think Andy Warhol's Campbell's soup cans combined with prominent Chinese political leaders. Exactly. And just to add a little bit more context, Chinese political pop emerged in China during this time of great social and economic change. As the result of economic reforms, which were implemented throughout the 1980s, this kind of consumer-driven capitalism really erupted all over the country. And Chinese artists during this time, they used political pop to really question such rapid economic transformation in the country. Mm -hmm. So Zhang lived in China during the Cultural Revolution, which lasted from 1966 to 1976. Mm -hmm. The Cultural Revolution was especially hard for Zhang's family. Zhang was targeted for his, quote, bad family background, end quote. Mm -hmm. Of the Cultural Revolution, the artist has said the reality didn't fit his imagination of the Cultural Revolution. Mm -hmm. And so like many other artists, Zhang decided to leave China. And after he moved to the United States, the iconic image of Mao really stuck with him. Mm -hmm. And so the work Quaker Oats Mao was inspired by this realization he had while eating oatmeal one morning. Mm -hmm. Zhang noticed a resemblance between the Quaker Oats man and portraits of Mao and then got the idea to merge the two icons together. 
as an aside, the Quaker Oats Man was originally based on woodcuts of William Penn. What, for real? Yeah. I always thought it was Ben Franklin. <laughs> Did you really? <laughs> yes. Well. Did you know that actually Pennsylvania is a Quaker state? Yeah. I mean, I went to Penn. Shout out Penn. Wow. I went to Pitt <laughs> in Penn, Sylvania. Considering Mao's face was ubiquitous in China during the Cultural Revolution, it's not surprising that he might envision Mao's face staring back at him from a Quaker oats canister. Yeah, so this work and others in the long-lived Chairman Mao series, which is ongoing, impresses on the viewer the sense of how pervasive Mao's likeness was in China and what a lasting impression it made not only on the mind of Zhang, but also on the lives of everyday citizens, even while eating breakfast. Mm -hmm. I think there's something interesting to say about how the Quaker Oats Man has been reproduced again and again on canisters of oats for so many years mm -hmm. in a way that Mao's portrait was also ubiquitous in China. It's not a huge stretch to imagine Mao's portrait showing up on packaged food in China. But what do you think Zhang's message with this piece is? The Quaker Oats Man is no doubt recognizable by everyone in America. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, he's a fictitious brand for breakfast oats. Is Zhang correlating the two to suggest Mao is just a brand? I mean, people of a certain age in China still hang Mao's portrait in their own homes. And so I'm not sure that they would consider Mao a brand. But at the same time, he is also way more than just a person like you and I, right? Uh, he's a myth, really. And so, you know, I think it's interesting that you bring up Warhol because Warhol was also really interested in the notion of replication. Um, and like Warhol, I think that Zhang is perhaps interested in the mass production of Mao's image, which like both breakfast cereal and ideology is ultimately something that we consume, right? Let's turn to the Bodhidharma Van Gogh series recently exhibited in New York City. This is another example where Zhang deconstructs our imagined boundaries between East and West through his conflation of Van Gogh and Bodhidharma. Mm. And for our listeners, the Bodhidharma was a Buddhist monk who traveled to China in the 6th century from India and founded Chan Buddhism, which is probably better known to many of us as Zen, which is the uh, meditation sect of Buddhism. Oh, there's a great legend about Bodhidharma and a Chinese scholar named Shen Guang that illustrates Bodhidharma's teachings. Mm -hmm. We should recount this story for our listeners because like Van Gogh's biography, it includes the severing of a body part. Oh my God. Yeah. And I wondered if Zhang Hongtu might have been considering this when he made this body of work. <laughs> Totally. So the story starts with uh, Shen Guang visiting the Bodhidharma at the Shaolin Temple. The Bodhidharma was meditating in a cave, 
and Shenguang, who was this scholar of both Confucianism and Taoism, he sought him out because he wanted to learn from the great master of Chan. Mm-hmm. So reportedly, Bodhidharma gave Shenguang uh, the once over and decided Shenguang was too weak physically to learn from him. Yeah, I'm pretty sure Bodhidharma would take one look at me too and say I was too weak. <laughs> Same. The- I did some construction with my friend this week and I grew one muscle. <laughs> I think I, after this pandemic, I don't have any muscles left. <laughs> uh, same. Anyways, so according to legend, Bodhidharma meditated in a cave near the Shaolin Monastery facing a wall for nine years supposedly he cut off his eyelids so that he could stay wide awake during meditation. And furthermore, his legs atrophied from sitting so long. So Shenguang spent a year practicing martial arts and then returned to Bodhidharma's cave physically fit. But the monk still refused to teach him. Oh my God, rude. (laughs) Yeah. Bodhidharma said, quote, if you can pull me down from my seat, I'll teach you, end quote. But no matter how hard Shenguang tried, he couldn't move Bodhidharma. This is when Bodhidharma taught Shenguang about the importance of developing one's internal strength, which is done through traditional Chinese Qigong breathing exercises. Mm. In this particular legend, this practice is called sinew metamorphosis. So off Shenguang went for another year to practice sinew metamorphosis. Talk about persistence, right? Mm-hmm. So Shenguang then returns to the cave to seek out Bodhidharma's teaching once more. But Bodhidharma tells him the birds in a tree near the cave are making too much noise for him to teach. So Shenguang tries shaking the branches of the tree but the birds just fly up to the top of the tree. Mm -hmm. And so as Shenguang wondered what to do, Bodhidharma went into meditation and used his internal strength or sinew metamorphosis to create a gust of wind that sent the birds flying from the tree. Shenguang then realized he needed to practice meditation to get Bodhidharma to teach him. Though Bodhidharma was teaching him all along, it seems. Mm -hmm. So after three years of meditation, Shenguang, he returns again to Bodhidharma's cave. Now imagine it's this cold, snowy day outside the cave. And Shenguang stands in the snow and pleads with Bodhidharma, please show me the way, master. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's easy for me to imagine a cold, snowy day because like a week ago, it was snowing in Wisconsin. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Now I know why I left. So Bodhidharma responds to Shenguang's pleading that he'll teach him when the snow turns red. So what does Shenguang do? He uses sinew metamorphosis and calmly severs his left arm and the blood from this act of self-mutilation turns the snow red. I mean, naturally, right? Like what, what, what is the natural course of action other than using sinew metamorphosis to sever your own arm? Yeah. I almost get the sense that Shenguan is getting so frustrated at this moment. He's like, well, I'll show you. (laughs) 
I'll show you. Just what do you what do you want me to do? Like what what is it going to take for you to teach mm-hmm. me your ways? Yep. But then get this, right? So Bodhidharma calmly asks after Shengguang is uh, has severed his arm. Bodhidharma asks, "What is troubling you, dear friend?" Right? And Shengguang responds that his mind is troubling him. My friend, mm-hmm. this part of the story always gets me. What is troubling you? Um, the guy just cut off his arm to get your attention. I know. Like, what? What more? What? What more are we gonna do for you, Bodhidharma? Anyways, Bodhidharma says, "Bring out your mind, and I will calm it." And it's at that point, Shengguang looks for his mind and realizes he has no mind. He is awakened. What a gruesome way to reach enlightenment. But there are many stories of self-sacrifice like this one in Buddhism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially in stories about the Buddha's previous incarnations. For example, there's a story of the Buddha in a previous life where he was a prince, Prince Mahasattva who sacrificed his body to feed a hungry tigress and her cubs. Dang. Yeah. Talk about self-sacrifice for the benefit of other living things, huh? Honestly, though, if it were for my dog, I would, I would, I, I get it. Never mind. Anyways, now that we've filled in our listeners a bit on Bodhidharma and his teachings, what do we make of Zhang Hongtu's Van Gogh Bodhidharma? I have to be honest here. When I first saw these paintings, I initially felt slightly disturbed. (laughs) Bodhidharma is such an intriguing historical person in his own right as the founder of Chan or Zen Buddhism. Totally. Why conflate him with an artist from a completely different time and place, especially one from Europe? What does Bodhidharma have to do with Van Gogh? Yeah, I think that that's a really good question, right? You know, when people think of Vincent Van Gogh, they likely, you know, are going to think about Starry Night, you know, sunflowers, Mm -hmm. uh, even potato eaters, right? And I think that this is especially even more so thanks to those, um, thanks to those Van Gogh experiences. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where you can like Mm -hmm. go into this kind of big hall and you can immerse yourself right Mm -hmm. in the work of Vincent van Gogh. Mm -hmm. Um, But in all of that, right. They're not really thinking about Asia. (laughs) Right. But in fact, van Gogh, like many of his artistic contemporaries, they were deeply influenced by Asian art, ceramics Mm -hmm. and the like. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know if our listeners know this, but van Gogh actually made his own copies of Japanese Yukioe prints, which were based on his own collection of Japanese woodblock prints, because during this period, there was a lot of exchange happening between China, Japan, you know, other parts of, of, of East Asia and Europe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Van Gogh's painting Bridge in the Rain is based on a print by the famous Japanese artist Utagawa Hiroshige. Exactly. So Van Gogh even gifted his friend this painting where he refers to himself as a Japanese monk. So just like the Bodhidharma's transmission of Cham Buddhism across Asia, Van Gogh was also engaging in this kind of cultural transmission of both representation, right? If we think of the Yukioe paintings and also ideas, right? Zen Buddhism. 
Mm-hmm. You know, Van Gogh as a monk actually makes a lot of sense. I mean, considering how prolific he was as a painter, it's interesting to think of his painting practice as a kind of Chan spiritual cultivation. Exactly. And I mean, I hate to say it, but does this also shed new light on why Van Gogh cut his ear? I think we'll save the conspiracy theories for another podcast. Boom, boom. <laughs> At the same time, there's something really interesting about this kind of mobility and exchange you're pointing to. This all reminds me of a recent conversation Zhang Hongtu had with the art historian Martin Powers about Zhang's recent work where he produced bronze vessels in the form of McDonald's iconic hamburger and French fry cartons. In describing this project, he says, quote, when I combined this image from the bronze vessels with the McDonald's containers, a feature of popular American culture, I wanted to reconstruct both sides. To join them together doesn't mean they are the same, but juxtaposing them demystifies the power on both sides. He adds, quote, what is, quote, Western? What is, quote, Eastern? Everyone talks about East and West, China and Europe. I get really tired of it, but I have no easy reply. So I try to use works like this to reply, end quote. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Of the Earth. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Buzzsprout. Interested in becoming a patron to support our podcast? Please consider supporting us on Patreon, linked in our episode notes. Patreon members will receive special offers and bonus content. We are Of the Earth Podcast.